Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app, as well as most popular podcast platforms. I'm Lance Meadow. Thanks so much for joining us. Jeff Fiegels will be joining me a little bit later on in the program as we'll get into a variety of topics, the Giants adding to the quarterback depth chart on the roster. We'll also look back at the 2017 draft and some trends and takeaways from that class, specifically with the deadline just passing for players' fifth-year options, and we will answer your submitted questions. But we start with the Giants draft class, and in the second round, they took safety Xavier McKinney with the 36th overall pick. And we are now joined by a very special guest. This is a true treat here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. He is the head coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide, none other than Nick Saban. Coach, you got Lance Meadow here on Giants.com's Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time today. I hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? everything in New York is getting better and you all are safe and sound up there as well. Absolutely. Appreciate that, Coach. Well, Coach, McKinney played all over your defense. You lined him up at various positions, safety, in the box, in the slot. You used him as a blitzer. What is it about his skill set that you entrusted him to take on multiple roles? Well, I think, you know, Xavier has a lot of diversity as a player. Um, you know, he can play man-to-man. He's got pretty good ball judgment. He's a good tackler. He's got a lot of toughness. Uh, he's a very uh, instinctive and effective blitzer. He's got some burst and acceleration, you know, to uh, come off the edge or blitz up the middle, and he's got enough power to take on a blocker if he needs to. So he, he can do just about all the critical factors in terms of what we look for in a safety here, and uh, he was – as he got experience, he was smart enough to be able to play multiple positions. Um, so, you know, he played safety for us and what we called dime when we went to six defensive backs and played strong safety one year, free safety one year. So um, he's got a lot of diversity as a player. What's his biggest strength in your mind in terms of where he may be able to have the most significant impact with that Giants defense? Well, I, I think the guy's got some dog in him. You know, he's a competitive guy. He's a playmaker. Uh, he was, you know, we, we have a production, you know, point system here that we use, and he was always, you know, high on that board because forces fumbles, shows up in the right place, does a good job of executing. He's instinctive. He's a quick reactor. Uh, he's got a burst. He can be a knockback tackler. So um, he's always been a real playmaker for us, and uh, I think uh, it comes in a lot of different ways, but that's probably his greatest strength is his production. You mentioned you view him as that alpha dog. I'm curious, how much coach did you rely on him to be the conduit between the coaching staff and the defense on the field in terms of communication as well as getting everyone set? All right. Well, as he got experience, uh, he learned how important it was to communicate. Uh, I think when young players, you know, when we get young players here, they're so worried about what they're supposed to do, they don't realize the importance of communication. And this past year, you know, X really took the bull by the horns and, you know, was the guy that ran the secondary and made a lot of calls and adjustments and understood that and, you know, sort of um, took that responsibility and ran with it. And I think that's an important thing for him at the next level. GM Dave Gettleman said they had a first-round grade on McKinney when he spoke to the media following the selection, and many projected him to go in round one. When you take into consideration his versatility and the resume you just laid out, Coach, how much of a steal was this for the Giants? I was, it was, uh, I think so. I, I think you know, he was the first safety taken. Uh, normally, 
statistically, there are two safeties picked in the first round, if you look at historical data. Uh, so he should have been a first-round pick, you know, based on historical information. And certainly as a player, uh, I think most people had him graded there. Uh, I just think sometimes, you know, in the draft when there's an overload at another position, like whether it's receiver, offensive line, whatever it is, you know, that guys don't always get picked where their grades says. So um, I think this was a really, really good pick for the Giants. And um, I, I think, you know, like I tell all the guys here, it's not where you get picked, it's what you do with the opportunity that you have. So don't worry so much about where you get picked. But you know, what you do after you get the opportunity. Well, and speaking of this opportunity, a unique offseason coach because of the fact that there's going to be very limited on-field workouts, given how much you challenge players, both mentally and physically within your defense, how well does that suit him to navigate an offseason like this as he makes the transition to the NFL? I think it'll be helpful to him because, you know, we, we do, you know, when I was a coach at the Dolphins or, you know, Bill Belichick's, defensive coordinator, you know, in um, Cleveland, you know, we do a lot of the same stuff here from a coverage standpoint, from a secondary standpoint. So, you know, our guys typically make good adjustments. I know a few years ago we had six guys that signed NFL contracts and five of them end up starting as rookies. So um, even though this will be a transition, I think most of the things uh, that X is going to be exposed to, he's probably done. We might call it something different. Uh, so uh, I, I think it'll be an easy transition for him. We're talking with the head coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide, Nick Saban, here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. And, Coach, your coaching tree has quite the presence on the current Giants staff. Joe Judge was a special teams assistant for you at Alabama for three seasons from 2009 to 2011. What did you see in him that may have given you an inkling that he had head coaching material in him? Well, you know, when Joe was here, he was a young guy, very bright. Uh, enthusiastic, great teacher, um, really good relationships with the players, uh, had lots of leadership um, qualities about him um, because of the example that he said and the energy and enthusiasm he had on a daily basis, and he was really smart, you know, had a good understanding of football. So um, no surprise to me that, you know, Joe um, has gotten to this point in his career uh, and we certainly wish him well. Uh, he did a fantastic job here for us. It certainly doesn't hurt that Joe Judge has had a front row seat to watching you in action, as well as Bill Belichick over the last decade, but more often than not, first-time head coaches are compared to their mentors, and you've seen many of your former assistants work their way up the coaching ladder, and Judge now has the opportunity to shape his own identity, build his own culture, so what would be your advice to him in terms of navigating his first season as now the official head man? Yeah, I don't think it's really fair uh, that you know, when you have former assistants on your staff, they get compared to their mentors because, you know, we all have different situations. I mean, you know, we, we've had the chance to establish our program, establish our team, get the kind of players that we want. And when you come into a new situation, you got to, number one, be yourself, be who you are, don't try to be somebody else, um, you know, and uh, do things the way you want to do them. And, um, you know, get the kind of players that you want, uh, and it takes some time to build that. Uh, I don't, you know, totally know the Giants situation. You know, we're, when you're in college, you don't get to see NFL games all the time on Sunday because we work. Uh, but I know Joe will do a really good job of doing that. But I think that's the most important thing. 
don't try to be like somebody else. Be, be who you are. Well, and as I mentioned, it's not just Joe Judge you have a connection to. If there's anyone who has been with you at Alabama the longest, it likely was new Giants running backs coach Burden Burns, who arrived at Bama with you in 2007. He has a great track record, Coach, as you well know, developing NFL running backs. Mark Ingram, Derek Henry certainly come to mind. What is his presence going to do for both Judge as well as somebody like Saquon Barkley? Well, I, I think, you know, first of all, Burton's a very fundamental type, per, you know, running back coach. And uh, he really has a really good grasp of how players need to press holes, read plays, read blocks. Um, and uh, he's really helped in the development of our players here, you know, because of that. Because a lot of guys that are great running backs, especially when we get them, they just get the ball and run with it. You know, they don't understand that you're setting up blocks and you're helping people create holes by how you actually, you know, take the correct steps and take the right, you know, uh, have, have the right, you know, point of attack uh, relative to aiming point and how that's going to impact and affect your chances to have a successful run on that particular play. Same thing in pass protection, you know, breaks it down, players understand it. Um, you know, so Burton is a really good fundamental coach. He's got a great personality. Players love him. Uh, they love playing for him, and uh, he does a really good job. But he will get on them now and, and, you know, confront and demand that they do things uh, at a certain level, which is uh, was always, you know, something with some of the high-profile guys we had here that he did extremely well. Coach, before I let you go, as I mentioned, you have a number of connections to the Giants coaching staff, and you have a number of connections across the league because of the fact that you have developed so many coaches. When a team like the Giants can turn to somebody like you because they have established relationships with you, how much does that help in terms of the evaluation and trust factor of determining what players to select? Well, I think that's up to every organization. You know, we've had a lot of guys that have come out of here and had successful careers, and um, I think it's because they understand process, you know, they understand uh, accountability. Um, you know, somebody's going to define an expectation and the standards. You have to do something, and you need to learn how to live up to it. And that's what we try to teach guys here, and uh, that's a way of the world. And uh, I think they need to understand that when they go to the next level. And uh, I think it helps them develop and focus on development, uh, so that they can improve and make a contribution to the organization. I think the track record of a lot of guys doing that makes people a little more comfortable, you know, taking our players, knowing that they've kind of gone through that process here. He is the head coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide, Nick Saban, as the Giants selected Xavier McKinney in the second round of this year's draft. Coach, greatly appreciate the time and the insight. I hope you and yours continue to stay safe and healthy, and hopefully we'll get back on the field sooner rather than later. Thanks so much. All right, thank you. Thanks again to Alabama Crimson Tide head coach Nick Saban for joining me and breaking down Xavier McKinney as well as the various connections across the board on the Giants coaching staff. And I now bring in Jeff Fiegels. Jeff, first of all, very good to continue the conversation with you here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. How's everything on your end? Doing good. Doing good. Just getting by like everybody else, Lance. Absolutely. um, Talking football through the internet. That's basically... (laughs) (laughs) That's the name of the game. You You make it sound so easy and simplistic, Uh, Jeff, when it rolls off your tongue. (laughs) Well, I think the, you know, everybody's looking forward to getting back to normal in our real lives. And, you know, football is one of them too. But, 
you know, a lot to talk about. It's got also, you know, the draft or the uh, schedule is getting released tomorrow, yeah. so that'll be interesting. And you know, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I'm doing well. It's just it's good to be on the show. It's good to uh, have people listening if they are. Uh, I know they are, and they're also tweeting and and getting us questions and they stuff are like indeed. that. So it's all good. Well, that is very good to hear. Let's start with Nick Saban and react yeah, to some interview. of the things he said because I think he provided some great insight. And let's start with McKinney. We knew he was an extremely versatile player, Jeff. That's been well documented. What I found interesting about what he said about McKinney was the fact that they were very confident in allowing him to be the key communicator on defense and how Nick Saban sold him on the idea, you can't just worry about your assignment. You have to make sure you know everybody else's assignment. And, you know, they empowered him to do that. And that's not something that when you look across the board with young defensive prospects that most coaches and most players are even comfortable taking on those responsibilities. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an acquire like trait, right? I mean, that's something you heard him say that, you know, he, he kind of grew into that and yeah. he was, uh, he was able to, as soon as the coaching staff realized that they could put more on his plate, they did. And, you know, a lot of times you don't know how those pre- people are going to react to that. Um, I think going into it, they thought he would be fine. And, and evidently he was. Um, so, and, and if you're a football guy and you've been on the field before and you've got one of those green dots on your helmet, the guys that are able to listen to the coaches and make the calls, it's not easy. Um, in, in our business, you know, when we have the things in our ears and there's people talking to us and while we're talking at the same time, you know, it's something you have to learn how to do. And I think that, um, he kind of maybe one of those guys that may, you know, kind of come into that role with the giants that was able to make some, some calls on the field. But I think that Nick Saban hit the nail on the head with him as far as, you know, how, how, how of a player you got, what do you got? I mean, he's a playmaker. He called him a dog. He's one of those guys that's just going to go out and make plays for you, but he's intelligent. And I think that that's like a prerequisite for coming in to be on Joe Judge's team. Well, and you brought up the green sticker on the helmet. And mm-hmm. I think what's interesting, Jeff, and you certainly have seen this up close and personal, having been in the NFL for so mm-hmm. many years, normally on defense, the linebacker has that assignment. Mm-hmm. So I think it's quite refreshing that in Alabama's defense, and I think part of this was because Alabama was hammered by injuries at the linebacker position early this season. So that's more of a reason why McKinney had to take on a bigger role, but the fact that, you know, they were okay giving a safety, at least that was his main position, that responsibility, where he's got a different vantage point compared to maybe somebody who mans the middle of the defense more consistently, I think that also says a lot about what they saw in him. Well, no, most importantly, yeah, absolutely. Number one, they knew they could, they could, he could handle it. The other thing, too, is that Nick Saban had said that he's played, he played everywhere. He played a lot yeah. of strong, which means he's up in the box, so he's able to make some calls from there. Um, I'm sure that if they put him in a game where he wasn't going to play a lot of strong safety, he was going to be a free safety, you know, maybe they gave the responsibility to somebody closer to the line of scrimmage to communicate with the front four or three guys that they play. And, and uh, you know, so I think that for a guy like that who has a responsibility uh, not only to play well at your own position to be able to try to get guys lined up, um, it says a lot. And I think it's part of leadership. I think it's part of um, – uh, football acumen and understanding the game and Nick had mentioned that how he understands the game of football um, and that's the kind of guys you need on Sunday you really do and speaking of understanding football and the mental approach when I had asked him about well you know you challenge guys physically and mentally 
And we always talk sure. about players coming out of Alabama, Jeff. They're very well suited for the NFL because you're playing for a coach that had been a defensive coordinator and a head coach on the NFL level. But, you know, sometimes I feel as if those phrases become so cliche because we easily yeah. say it. It's another thing then when the head coach himself backs that up and says, yes, what I ran in Miami with the Dolphins is what I run in Alabama. So the, what I put my players to the test with with Miami is the same thing that I exposed McKinney. So if he's got to have an entire offseason where he's got no on-field work and it's all mental, 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 Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting, you want to know that you're bringing in a guy that has the concentration level, Jeff, that you know he's not going to get bored out of his mind after 60 <laughs> minutes because he can't get out on the field and put the pads on and get physical with somebody. Yeah, and I, I think recognition is a big part of this. You know, when you play football and you come into different types of systems, um, there are some positions where it's just recognizing. I mean, listen, cornerbacks and safeties, what do they do? They, 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 they cover and they come up and make plays. I mean, so, you know, these guys, there's, there's, there's certain coverages that they learn, but they all played the, they've all played these coverages in college. Um, so, yeah, you do have a familiarity with a guy like Nick Saban who runs a complex defense knowing that when you're going to draft a guy like Xavier McKinney, that you're, going to, you're getting a guy that's coming in here experienced with that type of play, that type of coaching he's already had, and, and understanding the acumen of football, like I said, because there are some, and I don't care about the Wanderlick test. I really don't. Um, that makes no sense to me. Yeah, the guy's smart. No, the guy isn't. There's a lot of guys that didn't do well on that test uh, for, for many reasons to come out and have Pro Bowl or All-Pro and Hall of Fame careers. So who cares? The thing about it is do you understand football and can you make adjustments, which he said he can, okay? Um, and by the way, are you able to take what you learn in the classroom and take it out onto the football field both in practice and in games? That's important. See, Lance, there's a lot of times where guys – that's, that's where things are lost. Um, guys can play football. But you got to learn in the classroom and then be able to take it all onto the game field. And if you can't do that, then that's where guys, you lose confidence in them, especially on the back end. I mean, if you got, yeah. if you got a safety that's in the wrong position and he's supposed to be playing center field <laughs> and they got a tight end running down the middle of the field, which I, by the way, it looked a lot like last year and the year before the Giants defense, um, you know, there's something going on there. So it's just happy to see that they, they have trust in a guy like that. And I will tell you, I believe a lot of the leadership from this defense is going to come from that back, that back end of the defense. I think that Jabril Peppers is a born leader, and I think that um, a guy like Love is – I'm not going to say he's going to be the leader, but I, you know, he comes from a program like in Notre Dame. We talked about him. Um, he was highly touted as a, as a leader there. And now you got Xavier McKinney, who is another leader. So look at those three guys there. That's pretty good. Well, and to your point, those guys are going to be critical because what did we talk about last year, Jeff? We talked about how the fact that the Giants' sack numbers weren't through the roof, and mm -hmm. they had to make sure that either they make those disruptive plays, even if it's not a sack, a deflected football, or a hit on the quarterback— or else you're going to leave the secondary out to dry. And unfortunately, more often than not, the Giants gave up big plays on the deep end. Now, what have they been doing? They've been investing in the secondary through the draft over the last two years, between the cornerbacks last year and now McKinney this year. So by default, as you mentioned, Jeff, you expect over these next few years, you know, nobody's saying that these guys have to be rah-rah in the locker room, but you're going to need them 
to be the heart and soul of your defense because you may have some changes up front. We don't know what's going to happen with some of the guys that are playing in that front seven, but you can guarantee that if the Giants made a selection high in the earlier rounds on a player who plays safety and corner, the expectation is that this player is going to be here for quite some time, which means you do want those leaders to develop from that area of the field. Yep, and also, you know, you want... I think that when we look at this defense for the Giants over the last few years, what the, the big thing that's been missing is big plays, right? I mean, and and Nick Saban had said about, he called them X. I, I mean, we have two X men. We got too many stuff. of them on this team. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but w- what he was saying is, is that this guy is a playmaker. Um, that's what this defense needs. They, yeah, they need sacks. Those are great. Um, they need sacks at crucial times. At the end of the games, when they got to get the ball back, or that you know things like that, but um, you want guys that are constantly making big plays on in games, and you know that's how you win football games. You, you get takeaways on defense and make big plays. Um, and I think that he has the type of burst that they that Nick Saban talks about, a guy that can you know drive his hips into a ball carrier and force that ball out, big hits, things like that from the safety position. We're going to be excited to watch him play. Um, I know there's going to be a comparison because you got the two Alabama safeties um, and Landon Collins and, yeah. and Xavier. But I think that, you know, you separate them because I think that I think I look at Landon Collins as more of a I think of he's more of a box safety guy that you could leave in there a lot more than Xavier McKinney. I think Xavier McKinney is going to be a guy that you can roam all over the place. And plus, he can cover. And that's why they drafted him. Well, and that's the big key because you also want the ideal complement to Jabril Peppers. But Mm -hmm. you brought up a great point, Jeff, in terms of plays, not just sacks. You want disruptive plays. And all you have to do is look at the Giants last season. Jeff, they had 16 takeaways. That's ridiculous. That's it. 16 (laughs) total. That was the third lowest total in the NFL last season. So it's not so much saying, okay, well, they didn't necessarily pile up the sacks, fine. But to your point, the forced fumbles, the interceptions, the game-changing plays that either put your offense in a great position and shorten the field or plays that lead to defensive scores. And that was not happening very often at all last year, which put more pressure on the offense to have to put a lot of points on the board or play catch-up because of some of the defensive breakdowns. But, you know, here's the other aspect of this, which is connected to where you started with McKinney. The one thing that McKinney has been consistent with is filling up the stat sheet in that regard, Jeff. Now, how many times have we seen, in fairness, we've seen guys in college, right? They're known for being in the right place at the right time. They're a ball hawk. We always label them that way. And then it doesn't always translate. So Mm -hmm. there are no guarantees in the NFL. But I think what's encouraging is not only was McKinney a smart intellectual player, as Nick Saban pointed out, but he was a consistent disruptive player. He wasn't a guy that just made a name for himself for an interception. He had the forced fumbles. He had the sacks. He had the deflected passes. He did a little bit of everything. So you hope even if two of those elements show up immediately, that's better than at least having nothing in that department. Well, when you look at some of his statistics, these are, these are what jump off the page. You talk about it. He had five interceptions from the safety position. 20 passes defended in five forced fumbles and one fumble recovery, and that is in 41 games. So I think there's a guy that's constantly making plays for you. Um, Now, there's a lot of other ones, okay, that you might have forced a fumble and the guy recovered it 
right? I mean, there might have yeah. been a pass deflection there. Did you get a pass deflection and it wasn't an interception? You know what I'm saying? So there's a lot of things that go into those statistics that you don't see. And, you know, there's a lot of things, like he said, when you play defense, um, you have to understand, and this is all part about coaching and being uh, the type of player where if you know you're not going to make a play, um, and he was actually talking a lot about this on the offensive side, about, you know, the running back position, stepping up and making the crucial block and getting a hat on a hat. And, on, and when you're running up into the hole, you got to make sure your your head's on the right side if you're making a block because the runner's going the other way. Things like that. I'm saying at the safety position, when you're coming up to make a play, you may not get the tackle, but you got to be in the right positions a lot of times. And to me, that's just as important as making the tackle. Where you see all the time where these guys are out of position, that's because of one of two things. They don't understand the game and what they're supposed to do, okay? Or they're always trying to make the big play, and they get, they get burnt on it. So these are the kind of things when you go and look at a guy like Xavier McKinney who comes out of a, a very good program, as we know, well-coached, great scheme. He's going to be that guy that's way ahead of the curve, and he's going to be a starter on game day, and that's why you picked him. I, they got a great value. I know there's a Charlie Cassidy, the former GM for the Redskins, loved this guy. When we talked to him, he said this was one of the biggest surprise picks to he, that the Giants got so lucky getting him. Um, and also, Nick Saban had mentioned what we've all talked about. You know, Xavier McKinney should have been a first-round draft pick, but because there were so many runs on different play uh, positions this year in the first round, it just forces guys down. So, you know, listen – he made a good point also by asking these guys, don't look at where you're picked. Just, you know, just kind of go out there and try to show them that maybe you should have been picked higher. But the bottom line is you got to, you're on a roster. Now go play football. Yeah, make the most of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And as he also pointed out, he made it very clear McKinney was the first safety taken. It That's just right. didn't happen, as you mentioned, Jeff, in the first round. Yeah, it's kind of funny how long he's been at Alabama, right? But he knows, still knows pro football. <laughs> did you hear he them talk indeed. about the statistics? Like, he oh, did. Well, he was throwing out the same. trends and the track <laughs> records. Correct. He was just whipping them out. He was like, well, if you go well, back in the history safeties. of the draft, That's there's right. at least two safeties <laughs> that are taken in the first round. Yeah. 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 I'm sure well, him and, and Belichick are exchanging you know, statistics and, and data back and forth. 100%. But you know what? That's why I think a lot of players also like to go to Alabama. It, oh. It's not just... The allure of the program, it's the fact that when Saban sits you down, Jeff, in that room, and you have the conversation, which I'm sure he does with a lot of prospects, it's the end of the season, you have to determine, are you coming back for another year, or are you going to throw your name in the hat right for the NFL draft? So one of the things that I'm sure he says to the player, he probably sat down McKinney and said, Xavier, you're arguably the best safety in college football right now, Mm -hmm. based on what I've seen Look at the numbers, 2014, 15, 16. Look at how many safeties are taken in the first round. I'm sure they went over that data, and that is a big part of the thinking in when guys should make the jump. There's no question. And, you know, there's a, I, I'm pretty sure because I, I remember hearing or reading about this council, there's, there's people that they, you know, they, the college guys can go to that say, hey, you know, give me an idea of where I'm going to be drafted. Um, and they basically tell them, so they want guys to stay in school if, they, if the board or the, whoever the council is tells them you're going to be a six-rounder. Um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I think that Saban is a guy that can sit down and tell him, listen, <laughs> you're going to go. So um, I need to know if you're going to go and then tell me. Um, but it's a good point, and, it's, uh, and it's, it's very well taken. A lot of guys a lot of guys get discouraged when some, some coach comes to them and says, hey, by the way, you're not going to be a first-rounder. Of course. <laughs> you know, it happens. But you want that coach, Jeff, that's going to be honest and straightforward with you 
and not blow smoke up, you know what? Well, sure. Just so you yeah. feel good about yourself. Well, I think that the coach automatically he should at the very beginning tell him, tell the player, listen, I'm going to be flat out honest with you. What I'm hearing and what I'm being told is that I don't have you going where you think you're going. Um, and it might be something you want to think of. And really, if you could just do X, Y, and Z for his next year, you know, maybe that number creeps up a little higher. Um, so maybe you want to stay in school. And we'll get into more trends with respect to first-round selections a little bit later on. Some interesting things that Jeff and I came about during our research within the 2017 draft class. But before we move on, we also talked about the coaching staff connections, and there are tons of them, specifically Joe Judge and running backs coach Burden Burns. And he was with Judge for three years when Judge was a special teams assistant. And the one thing that constantly comes up, Jeff, and this to me also gets tied in with McKinney, you ask Belichick, you ask Saban, you ask everybody else who's been around Joe Judge. Intellect, good teacher, connecting with players. I feel as if it's a broken record because that's always the three characteristics that I find are common when you ask somebody for their take on what Joe Judge's character traits are all about and what makes him an effective coach. And when you hear that consistently across the board, that clearly means that he, when he has interacted with fellow coaches, that that consistent message seems to be getting across as well. Well, the, no question. And we hear that message from him all the time. And he's always telling us these are the type of guys that I want on my team because he wants to be able to communicate with them in that way. I also believe that he has an ability to, to communicate with his coaches in the same way. Um, obviously, he's not been a head coach, but I feel that, you know, you haven't, we haven't had a chance to, to really talk a lot to the coaches because nobody's been around. But from what I have seen and heard, uh, they all love working for him so far. Um, what they like about Joe Judge from a coaching perspective is that they know that, that Joe Judge trusts them in their evaluation because that's what they're doing now. They know that Joe Judge understands that each one of them are different the way that they teach. But remember in that, in that opening press conference, what did he want out of his coaches? He wanted teachers, yep, guys that were going to come here. So, you know, he's a teacher. And we hear that from, like you said, everybody. Tell, oh, Joe Judge, what a teacher, what a teacher. Well, you want to surround yourself with the same type of people. And he wants to surround himself with teachers because he can relate to it. Um, and then the players can relate to it also. I believe that that's a huge characteristic of this, of this new coaching staff that's here is that they're going to be able to teach these players um, whether it's uh, technique, fundamentals, uh, how to study, how to be prepared, how to be a better football player by, by being a teacher rather than somebody that's out there yelling and screaming. Now, remember, he said Burton Burns is, is a guy that will get on you. Um, I have met Burton. I've talked with him a few times. I could tell you that he looks like a guy that's uh, very nice on the outside but will just grill you on the football <laughs> field. <laughs> I mean, he's one of those older men. He's, he's by far got to be the oldest guy in the staff, but he's been around football so much. But um, as Nick Saban said, he has a very simple, simple way of coaching the running back position. You know, that's it. Well, and he seems like a no-nonsense type of guy with respect yeah. to that. And I, may, I say that in a very positive way. I don't know if you recall, Jeff, but we had Mario Cristobal on – Mm -hmm. earlier in the week, the Oregon head coach, and we had asked him about Burden Burns because Cristobal actually was on the Alabama staff under Saban. It's amazing. <laughs> you connect these dots. Everybody knows yep. each other. So 
Cristobal told a really funny story that they're in the Alabama coaching staff room and the offensive staff is discussing ideas about trick plays or creative plays. So Burns, he says, is chewing on the edge of his pen and he stops the conversation and he goes, you want to know a trick play? Here's a trick play. Give the damn ball to Derrick Henry and get the hell out of his way. <laughs> and doesn't that sound like Vernon Burns? It sounds exactly. like, stop the bells and whistles, people. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to the fundamentals. And that was also something that, in all seriousness, Nick Saban mentioned. He said he's a fundamentally sound guy. He's going to take these running backs and he's going to drill them on fundamentals. And let me yeah. be clear. That's not to say that the previous coaches were not stressing fundamentals because I think that sometimes gets lost, Jeff, that mm-hmm. you know the previous regimes, that they didn't care about fundamentals. All it means is, is that... The new staff has an M.O. for that, and that's certainly a positive as you're trying to develop young players. Yeah, well, especially Saquon Barkley. Yeah. I I think that he understands how great of a player he can be, but he still needs work. You know, yeah, generational player, yeah, all this. But listen, he's still young. He still has to learn this game, and there's so much for him to learn, and there's really not a veteran there to teach him. You know, it'd be great if Tiki Barber was still on the on the uh, the Giants that could teach him a lot of the stuff that goes on, a Brandon Jacobs. But there isn't when you think about that. Um, now, they do have a veteran that, that's here now um, that's played in the league a little bit, but he has nowhere the ability of Saquon Barkley. And I'm talking about Dion, right? Dion Lewis, yeah, from um, the Patriots. So I think that that'll help him. But more importantly for Burton Burns, the running back coach, how he's going to help Saquon is that we know that Saquon, is, he's, he's a heck of a football player. He prepares. He's always in shape. He's always doing the right things. When you have a guy like, like Burton Burns who's been around the position for so long, he will make things easier for them. And then you let the reactionary part of the football game take its place. So he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna slow the game down for Saquon and make him understand that you don't have to do all of this stuff. Just do this and this and you're going to be fine. And the next thing you know, uh, boom. You know, maybe you're not dancing around the hole as much as you used to. You know, just hit it. Run through the hole, and you're going to be fine. So there'll be a lot of stuff that's tweaked, but it's all about teaching. All about teaching. The small, subtle things, Mm -hmm. the nuances of the game that really could make a difference in a guy like Saquon Barkley's trajectory. Because to your point, when you're that dynamic of a player, Jeff, Mm-hmm. Not to say that he doesn't go back and study film, but sometimes the things that need to be pointed out to you that could be the big difference are minute on, on the tiniest oh. decimal level that you need somebody that is a stickler for the fundamentals, I mm-hmm. feel, in yeah. order to point that out to you sometimes. I, I don't know if a lot of people truly understand about fundamentals in football. And it's just the little things, Okay. At the professional level, you've gotten that far because of your athletic ability. Um, each one of us has, when you, when you enter the NFL and you have a good career, you have worked on your skills and your fundamentals and footwork. All that stuff goes into it. Here's what happens. When you have a little bit of success, okay, um, you don't think that you really need much more because you've been successful. But... Then it comes down to the player. Do you want to be that guy that just has a decent career, or do you want to take it to the next level? We always hear that in players. I want to take it to the next level. Well, what does that mean? That means that I'm okay with what I'm doing now, but I know that I can improve on X, Y, and Z. 
that's when the coaching comes in. I'll give you an example. In my like 17th, 18th year, um, Tom Quinn, a coach who's very cerebral. He's a guy that would, he would talk to me because I was a veteran, okay? And what he would do is like he would watch me for weeks on weeks. And finally, he would call me into a meeting room and show me some tape real quickly. Listen, I watched your footwork on this, or I watched where your plant foot is when you were going left and when you were going right. Just pointing out just little tiny things. That, because what happens is you get in, you get in ruts, and you yeah. just don't. You know, if you're not watching it and you're not understanding it, you're still you're still executing it, but you could be better at it. The coaches, that's how good these guys are. They understand the fundamentals and and just the little things that you have to do. Burton Burns is a guy like that. He might notice that Saquon, before he's taken his first step, he's taken a step backwards, which is which is taking a couple, you know, a half a second um, longer to get the ball to get to the hole. So these are just little things that these coaches pick up on as you go through uh, practices and games and years and years. And so when you can get a, a coach that's been around that position for so long, it's so critical because you know these coaches bounce around. Um, they're a quality control coach, and then they might be the quarterback, assistant uh, quarterback coach, and then they move to tight ends. Burton Burns has been a running back coach for years. So this is how it's going to help Saquon and well, that other group. And speaking of that, Jeff, I'm glad you brought up the bouncing around. Here's something else, though, on Burns' resume that to me gets overlooked. You're right. He has been known as a running backs coach, but interestingly, each of the last two seasons, he served as also Nick Saban's assistant head coach. And the reason I bring that up, here's where I think Joe Judge has some valuable assets on the staff. Oh, yeah. The fact that he has, Jeff, a lot of former assistant head coaches, associate head coaches, head coaches, as you well know, and I loved your story about Tom Quinn. Those guys are used to not only just focusing on one position, but they're also focusing on the big picture. They may one day, you know, take a look at the running backs, and then they're going to look at the wide receivers. And I feel as if there may be a time where Joe Judge is in his office, and maybe one of those positional coaches who has head coaching experience may walk in and say, hey, you know what? During Tuesday's practice, I was observing the wide receivers because once again, it's a tendency when you're a head coach, you're examining and looking at everything. And maybe that coach picks up on something completely outside of his positional group and he brings it to the attention of judge and, and judge either talks to the positional coach or applies it in some other capacity to the team. That I think is something that hasn't been discussed enough. Well, it, exactly. And that, this is, you've just defined a staff meeting. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's you know when these guys meet the coaches in the morning before um, or in the evenings mo- most of the time in the evenings um, after the players are gone and they're putting game plans together and they're and they're talking this is what happens they get in a room and they start talking about each player every single day they're talking about each player and Tom Quinn might bring up something like you said that he saw the running back position out of the receiver position because he got an extra set of eyes and I think that when you're building a staff then you want to build it in a way that that Joe Judge wants it. As far as the teachers, um, it's going to be a lot easier to have those meetings and then try to improve each position by having guys that understand the game and are able to teach the player. It's just it's 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 a it's a great way to go about um, handling your football team from a perspective of having guys that are aware of how to teach. Because if you don't have those guys, they're not going to be looking for it. You know what I'm saying? They're yeah. not. They're just out there coaching X's and O's. Um, 
there's you know that's why there's a lot of really good offensive line coaches in the in the league that stick around for a long long time because that position is all about technique and fundamentals. You know, footwork is huge for offensive linemen, tackles, guards, centers. And if you have a coach that doesn't really know or pay attention to some of that stuff, that they're only worried about, you know, the slide protections and and get your fits on the run game, things like that. Well, those are all part of the position, but there's a lot more to it, too. And if you have a coach that can understand that and teach that, it's just so much better. 100%. And that, to me, is a big theme on this coaching staff as you laid out. Lance Meadow, Jeff Fiegel's with you here on Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Thanks so much for tuning in. Recapping some of the thoughts that Nick Saban provided on the coaching staff connections he has, as well as Xavier McKinney. Now, in terms of recent transactions, and this also falls into the theme, Jeff, that we're talking about, about teaching in the classroom The Giants, interestingly, claimed quarterback Cooper Rush off waivers from the Cowboys. He was just let go because Dallas brought in Andy Dalton to back up Dak Prescott, and the Giants had waived wide receiver Reggie White to make room for Cooper Rush. Now, the Giants have Daniel Jones. They have Alex Tanney. They have Colt McCoy. It's not as if they're lacking in that department in terms of youth and experience. But here's a player that has, let's play the connect the dots game, Jeff, which we seem to be doing every single day. He's been in the Cowboys offense, yep, with Jason Garrett. Mark Colombo, too, has been there. So I look at this rush addition as somebody who could be extremely valuable as an extension to Garrett in the QB room and Jerry Shuplinski, the quarterback coach, who's also learning this offense, where if Jones and McCoy and Tanny have questions, hey, here's a guy who's been in this offense for three years, 17, 18, 19. He's been with Dallas. He knows that offense backwards and forwards. Yep, 100%. And, and listen, um, things always happen at every position, injuries, uh, performance. You know, we always talk about guys losing their job because they got hurt. There's guys that lose their job because they stink, right? And that could be a backup position too. So, you know, Colt McCoy could be coming into the QB room and doing all he can, um, you know, kind of like Josh McCown, right? A guy that he's very smart. He's been around the game. He knows it. But he may not be that great on the field. Um, This guy, Cooper, who's been around the system, you know, maybe he moves into that backup role. It's it's, going to be a competition. I mean, Alex Tanney, um, and we've talked about this before, Lance, you know, this is a new staff. This is a new uh, team. And if you weren't brought in by the regime here now, you may not be here. Uh, now, I know that he was brought in here by Dave Gettleman um, and Pat Shermer, but, you know, Alex Tanney, I don't know what this means for him. Um, but I do, I do like it in a sense that we can talk about familiarity. We can talk about something that, that he can add value to the QB room. And obviously he can play a little football. He can play quarterback because you don't just bring him in there for that. You know what I'm saying? Of course. I think you bring up a great point. I always say this, and as you hit it right on the nose, when a player was brought in from the front office but has no ties to the current coaching staff, all bets are off as far as I'm concerned. And and, and Joe Judge has said that in a roundabout way, saying that there's going to be competition at every position. I don't care how old you are, what round you were picked in, um, anything like that. It's all – It's everything is clean slate. We're coming in. We're going to compete. Um, well, we know that's coach talk, but we on the, on the surface of it, it's probably, you know, 90% of the roster and how they're going to shape it up and who's going to play, but that other 10% has a chance. 
Plus, also, Cooper Rush is a young player. He's only yeah. 26 years old, and as yeah. I mentioned, undrafted in 2017. So we're talking about a player that's been in the league three years, and his regular season resume, Jeff, consists of three pass attempts, one completion for two yards. And both of those appearances <laughs> were in lopsided games when the Cowboys were either winning big or losing and they needed to give Dak a breather. So, you know, if anything, this is also a potential developmental player, which doesn't hurt the roster. Nope. And, um... Listen, I, I feel it's just all about getting guys in there that, that the learning curve. Think about this now. Um, Cole McCoy is a pretty smart guy. I'm not sure that Alex Tanney is too. Maybe this doesn't really mean anything, but it does to a point where, you know, Cooper Rush is familiar with the offense. So, and I don't know how much this team is going to have, you know, preparation time. Exactly. And so, you know, you want to bring guys in here with that are familiar, you know, um, I look at Cam Wallace, right? I mean, did I say that right? Yeah. Wait, who are we talking about? No, I no, lost no, you. I'm sorry, Cam Wallace. <laughs> Cam Wallace. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, Is that a late addition? Did I miss no. something? <laughs> the right tackle from Dallas, um, Cam. Cam Fleming. Uh, Fleming. Cam Fleming. Okay. Cam Wallace. I was like, Cam wow. Wallace. Is he a basketball player? I didn't get the player? scouting department on him. Uh, Cam Fleming. So, you know, he's another Yeah, it's guy a combination of Cam Newton and Ben Wallace, the former <laughs> NBA player. <laughs> it's amazing how you combine two athletes, Jeff. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> They're both tall. That's exactly. Sure. Um, but I, my point is that, you know, there's another guy that's familiar with an offense. They bring him in to compete. Um, and, you know, right now these guys are in the classroom remotely. And I think that a lot of times that can do a lot of good for these guys uh, because there's more time to have in the classroom with them now than they normally do because there's, there's, they, there's no on-field stuff that they have to get to. Yeah. You know, so um, but it, it's going to be a little bit different. Lance this year obviously with what's happened in preparation time um, but you know guys are it's football and they will learn as much as they can and they will go out on that field and do as much as they can when they're allowed to but until then it's all about classroom teaching really is. And I agree with you. It's convenient for us to say and for those that have been listening we constantly bring up the connections across the board and you have yeah. to do that because it's a small NFL family. We think it's so vast. And Jeff, you know, if we went through the history of your career, you have connections like crazy, whether it be mm -hmm. coaches or players. That's no what question. happens, right? Yeah. Everybody crosses paths. So it's convenient to say, and I'm sure a lot of people, okay, it goes in one ear and out the other. But I think having those connections on the roster this offseason, as you pointed out, Jeff, more so than any other offseason, it may actually start to hold a little bit more weight because if I'm Daniel Jones, and this is now, Jeff, and I've brought this up multiple times, mm -hmm. this is his third offense in as many years. And I'm not saying that Daniel Jones can't handle that. He's a very smart player. He's been with a lot of very accomplished coaches, whether it be David Cutcliffe, whether it be Pat Shermer, and now mm -hmm. Jason Garrett. But that's a lot for him to now have to digest without having those physical reps on the field. So if I'm Daniel Jones, and after I have the meeting, now Cooper Rush just joined the team, why not use him as a valuable resource? Especially if Jason Garrett has to have another meeting with other members of the offense, or he has to have coaching meetings. I can have a Zoom meeting with Cooper Rush, and I can ask him and pick his brain. Hey, you ran this play in Dallas. What were the looks on this play? Who was the first target? How well did it work in the times that you saw it executed during a regular season game? I don't think it hurts to have that type of a player to turn to under these circumstances. Here's the other thing that people don't understand. There, there's rules, meeting times, 
And, you know, the CBA says you're only allowed to do this, this, and this, right? The coaches are only allowed to be on the field with the players for so many times. Well, there are no rules as far as players communicating and Zooming themselves, you know, FaceTiming themselves on the phone talking about offense, defense. They can talk as much as they want. So how great is it to have a guy like Cooper Rush who's familiar with an offense that Daniel Jones is going to run that's never been in it? You know what I'm saying? So these are types of things why you see the connection that they may not be able to, as the coaches may not be able to sit there for nine hours a day and talk to the team and the positions, but the guys can do it. The guys can talk all they want. They can do whatever they want. It's just the coaches can't. And that's, yeah. and that's, and that's there by, for a reason, by the way, because those coaches will coach the players for nine hours if they could. <laughs> Trust me. And they'll never let you go home. <laughs> they'll never let you go home. I mean, it's, it's amazing because you know what? Those guys, they're, they're lifers. They're football coaches. They live and breathe and eat football, and they want you to eat, eat and breathe and live <laughs> football too. You know, so it's just crazy. But my point is if you have somebody familiar with the offense or the defense, the players can get together and go over it and talk about it as much as they want. Before we answer some of your submitted questions later on in the program, earlier we were talking about the draft with respect to Nick Saban, and you and I were talking before the show, and I think we had some interesting statistics that we brought up, and I think it's important to share it with the audience because we receive a lot of questions about grading draft classes, Jeff, right? Everybody wants to know, what'd you think of the draft class? Give us a grade. And the typical response, and it may be boring to our listeners, but I'm going to continue to preach it. It's impossible for me to give any draft class a grade until one, I see these guys on the field, and number two, until I see them on the field for multiple years. So now, with the Giants picking up the options of Evan Ingram and Jabril Peppers, it gave us an opportunity to look back at the 2017 draft class. Not just the Giants class, the entire first round. Because the deadline just passed, teams had to make decisions. And interestingly, Jeff, 14 of the 32 first round picks did not have their options picked up. And I mentioned that to you off the air, and you brought up a great point. Because I said to you, boy, that's nearly half. That seems like a lot. And your response was, not overreacting, like some of the rest of us, but (laughs) trying to provide perspective. And I thought this was a great point, and that's why I want you to get credit for this, because people certainly weren't hearing the conversation we had off air. And you brought up, well, what about 2016? So I went back and looked at 2016, and then you learn... Well, 13 players had their (laughs) options declined from the 2016 class. So 13 and 16, 14 and 2017. So what does this say, Jeff? Well, I think what it says is you can get excited over a first-round pick. You can get worked up. And it just goes to show you that it is an inexact science at the end of the day. And sometimes three years later, you Mm -hmm. come to the realization You know, we don't want to pick up the fifth-year option, and we want to move on from that player. So that should be a lesson learned from anybody that gets caught up in the grading and jumping to conclusions with these players. You could look at a first-round pick, a lot of upside, a lot of potential, and then three, four years down the road, your option's not picked up, and the outlook is very differently than it was four or five years prior. And listen, if anybody's listening to the show today and they want to do a little research, go back and maybe go back to last 10 years. No, I don't know. If, yeah, 10 years. Go 10 years and see if the options are picked up. And yeah. I'd be, I'd be, I would be surprised if there was any one draft going back to 2010. Let's go back 10 years. If there was any one draft that three quarters of the first round were picked up the fifth year options, I would be, in, I would be, I don't think it would happen. Um, the other one is check the top five picks. 
then that one would be very interesting. And that's exactly where I was going to go. <laughs> it's you know, funny you would think of that. That would be the really good, interesting one. The fact of the matter is that there's a lot that goes into this. There's guy, there's injuries. Um, there's overhyped. Um, yeah. There's guys that were really good in college and thought that they would transition well into the NFL, and they just didn't. Johnny Banzel. Uh, there's guys that just you know or just don't care. They get their money. I, 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 this is the craziest thing. So back in the day when I was in Philadelphia in the early 90s, there was a tackle named Anton Davis. Um, I don't remember what school, maybe Tennessee. He was a left tackle drafted number one. Big, big deal. We call him Anton Davis, <laughs> right? Um, I remember, and I used to hang out with the offensive linemen a lot, and Dave Alexander, who was the center, was a good friend of mine. He told me one day that they were you know, just talking and this and that, and they always sensed that Anton didn't have a – he just didn't really want to play football. And he was the first-round draft pick. Got a lot of money back then, right? He, he, but he told the guys, as soon as my option is up and they don't renew it, I'm done. I'm quitting football. I just want – I'm going to play – I'm going to be a first-round draft pick. I'm going to take my money for four years, and then I'm leaving the game. And he did. <laughs> So my point is that there's some guys that just don't care. They just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, that, that there's not a lot of guys like that. But I think that the it's just important to understand that, like you said, this is not an exact science. And we get all excited about these first-round draft picks. I mean, there were a lot of people excited about Eric Flowers. There really were. Out of Miami, a big dude, um, huge dude, right? I mean, a lot of upside. But there was also a lot of people that didn't like it. But you know, these things don't work out sometimes. I'm just hoping that, you know, when you and I did a show together on this topic and you asked me about the two and I told you that I would, I would, I would do Jabril Peppers over Evan Ingram. Um, and I hope that Evan Ingram proves me wrong this year because I want him to do well. Um, and they did pick up his option, but I feel like this is kind of one of those things where, and I told, talked to Paul about this the other day is that, just because they pick up the option doesn't mean they have to pay you. You know, you still have to. They can still cut you. Of there course, are some, there are some guarantees in there at certain times of the year. The league year starts and things like that. But the fact is, just because they pick you up doesn't mean that you're guaranteed the contract. That's basically they're telling Evan Ingram this year. This is a show me year, right? You're gonna if you do well, we'll pick up your option, and most likely there's going to be an extension. So we'll see. It's funny. I brought up Anton Davis's Wikipedia page. Okay. Am I, so, was I right? Oh, you were right on the line. <laughs> he was the eighth overall pick in 1991. Okay. And he was with the Eagles from 91 to 95. The funny thing is the first line I go to, it says, considered a draft bust in Philadelphia. <laughs> That's literally the first line I go to after yeah. the 95 season. And he did actually go on to play for the Falcons for two years after okay. that. And then was with the Packers briefly during okay. their offseason program in 1999. But my, to your point, point, yeah, nothing yeah, he, ever happened after he, that. He just he didn't want to yeah. play football. Um, and, you know, people just kept throwing money at him, obviously, and said, you know, you, you're a number one draft pick. And you know how that works, Lance. When you're labeled, if you're a number one oh, draft pick. absolutely. I mean, you got a couple years there. You can just, you know. You have some leeway. Exactly. You're just living on, on that draft pick number. Which is horse, you know what? Because there's so many guys, they're so labeled by that draft pick number. Oh, he was only a third round pick. He was only a, you know, he was only a, he was a six round draft pick. Well, who cares? I mean, he had seven interceptions, you know, whatever yeah. it is. So it's just a number at the end of the day. That's why you always hear Bill Belichick at all of these top coaches who have been around the league. Their response, even Pat Shermer said this a lot when he spoke to the media. There would be follow-up questions about picks the second year in the league, 
and the expectations. And the responses would be, guys, it's over. They've been in the league for a year already. I don't care whether they were taken in the first round, the second round, or the third round. The clock is ticking. You either show up and play or we move on. You know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you can only ride off the coattails of being a first-round pick, to your point, Jeff, for so long. Well, I, I think that there is the notion that, and this is somewhat true, is that, you know, the, if you're a first, second, or third rounder, you're hoping that there, there's some con- contribution that year you get drafted, right? I mean, the other, the other guys, we understand why. Uh, there's height, weight, speed, um, medical, some things like that that drop you down. And we're going to work to get you better. And we're hoping that maybe in two years, three years from now, that you play like a first rounder. But we're only going to take you into fourth. But the bottom line is, is that it's a lot easier for us to cut fourth rounders than it is the second and first rounders. <laughs> no doubt about it. And you brought up Evan Ingram versus Jabril Peppers. The other thing that's important to note, just related financially, and this is why to me it was a no-brainer for the Giants to pick up both options, there is levels in terms of how much the fifth-year option is. So, for example, if you're pick one through ten in the first round, Mm -hmm. your option is clearly much more expensive than if you're 11 through 20 and so forth. There's layers that are built into the CBA in terms of rookie contracts. So keep in mind, when you look at where Evan Ingram and where Jabril Peppers were selected, Peppers was 25, Ingram was 23. So their fifth-year options from a cost-effective measure are a lot more manageable than if we're talking about, Jeff, one of the top five picks sure. in the 2017 draft. Yep, and that all goes into the discussion. Of course. Why, when, they, if, if, they want to, if they want to pick it up. Um, because they can say, listen, you know what? If we're going to re-sign this guy uh, for this, you know, does it make sense for us to? Uh, why don't we just pick his option up for one year, pay him that, and then we can, you know, if he does well, maybe with four games left in the season, he's doing well, then we'll just renew. We'll just exactly you know, just do a, do a new contract. So we've got yeah. more of a sample size to determine right. whether or not we want to invest in that player for an additional year or long term. Now you brought up a great point. You said, well, let's peel it back even further, and let's look at the top five picks in Mm -hmm. every year's draft. Well, interestingly, in 2017, as I mentioned, 14 players in the first round, their options were declined. Remarkably, Jeff, Miles Garrett was the first overall pick. Okay, the Browns picked up his option. Now, let's go down to five. Mitchell Trubisky was number two to the Bears, and remember, they traded up. Mm -hmm. His option was declined. The Niners took Solomon Thomas, the defensive end out of Stanford, with the third overall pick. They declined his option. The Jaguars took Leonard Fournette out of LSU, the running back, with the fourth overall pick. They declined his option. The Titans took Corey Davis, the wide receiver out of Western Michigan. He was declined. So, to use your logic here, Jeff, that means in the 2017 draft, only the top overall pick out of the top five picks had Mm -hmm. their option picked up. That means picks two through five are going to be free agents after this season. And we always talk about you got to you got to hit on those two, yeah. three, four guys, right? Yeah, you do. You Unreal. do need to hit on them, but you're not. It's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's unbelievable it that is. the next four picks after Garrett probably are not going to be back with their respective teams. Yeah, it's a fun little research project to go back it and is. do it. You know, I mean, you look at it, and uh, we'll be talking about this when Saquon comes up, right? Number three pick overall. Um, I mean, is it? it, it we'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. And now that that those numbers are going to be big, um, you know, but as we go and the, and everything, the CBA and all the revenue goes up. Although I don't know about the revenue this year. We'll see. What Time happens. will tell. Well, yeah. but here you look at Christian McCaffrey. 
with okay. Saquon Barkley, Jeff. Okay. That's all you have to do. Just look that's at McCaffrey's contract. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right? Because McCaffrey is a weapon, and the Giants look at Barkley the same way. He's not a running back. He's a weapon. He's an offensive weapon because of what he does in multiple facets. So right. I think if you're Barkley and you're probably his reps, it's understandable that you're going to look at McCaffrey's contract and probably look to that as a starting point with respect yeah. to the negotiations. Yep. Yep, there's so much to go into those types of talks, and that's why it's a you know it's a long process. I mean, these things aren't just discussed overnight when the when the date is on the horizon, right? I mean, these things are <laughs> these things are discussed for a long time. That's why you have an assistant GM, uh, personnel guys, you know, all the whole upper management. They they've got a list of things and rules they got to follow and dates they got to get by. So it's a business. It's a big business. Well said. Absolutely. All right, let's get to a few submitted questions before we wrap up shop. This comes from Jeff, and he writes the following. If Leonard Williams gives the Giants the player they expect this season, will Dave Gettleman try to sign him to a new contract during the season? Now, it's important to note here, Jeff, this is dictated by the CBA rules. Remember, they gave Leonard Williams the franchise tag. So when you give a player the franchise tag, that means that you have until July 15th to work out a long-term deal. Once July 15th passes, either the player plays the season out on the franchise tag or that's it. You don't have the flexibility, Jeff, to negotiate with that player. So to the questioner's point, if Leonard Williams, let's say, does play out the season on the franchise tag, and by the way, Dave Gettleman's been on the record. They're confident that they feel they could get something done. But with that being said, let's play out the hypothetical. Let's assume he does play out the franchise tag, and plays under that throughout the season. He could very well be a productive player, but the Giants, their hands are tied because of CBA rules and regulations, Jeff. Yeah. I mean, he becomes a free agent if he wants, right? At the end of the season, he would become a free agent. They Mm -hmm. could also tag him again, though, keep in mind. Remember, you could tag a player multiple times. So the the Giants wouldn't lose him. He wouldn't become automatically an unrestricted free agent. Yeah. Kirk Cousins. Correct. Or Drew Brees. Drew Brees is another guy who's been tagged in multiple years. Exactly. So they have flexibility to retain Leonard Williams. It's just you don't have the flexibility to hammer out a long-term deal if that player is playing on the tag and it's beyond July 15th. So that is important to know. You've got to do it before that. Correct. Now you're rolling the dice throughout the whole season. Exactly. I mean, you could lead the league in sacks and then you're in trouble. Well, he then drives up his price. Yes. That's right. Exactly. And you hope that happens. Well, of course. That's a good thing for the Giants' sake. Yeah, and I think that you know, Leonard Williams um, has said he wants a big contract, and um, I still feel like the Giants are to the point where, okay, we got the transition on him. I mean, they, so I think that, well, let's let it, let's see, let's talk about this. Let's see what the cap goes to. Let's see how things go, and we got till July. So we'll figure it out. Well, and remember, I think a lot also depends on one of the things that well, Dave Gettleman brought up, Jeff, when he's talked with the media previously, and salary cap space has come up and how you go about your business during the offseason. Remember, he's always brought up, you always want to leave some money left over for the sake of signing un- uh, unrestricted free agents who are still out there who may fill in via injury or giving extensions to other players. You brought up Barkley, for example. Well, he brought up Dalvin Tomlinson is another guy. Who knows? Maybe they want to hammer out an extension. So I think a lot depends on how they view the roster and who they're prioritizing in addition to some of the other things in the short term. Yep, and it's all about, um, you know, how the priorities and where you need, um, 
you know, where your needs are on the team. Um, you know, if, if Davil Thomason and B.J. Hill, um, these guys are playing extremely well, they may not need Leonard Williams anymore. They might just say, just walk. We're not going to pay you that. You know, so it just all depends, Lance. It really does. Um, timing is everything. And every player's contract, it's all about timing. It really is. I mean, you look, you look at McCaffrey. Um, pretty good timing, right? I mean, he was, doesn't yeah. hurt. <laughs> yeah. So, and if you're a running back, you know, Henry, uh, even, even Saquon Barkley, some of these, these guys that are up and coming, uh, they're looking at that contract going, wow. Okay. I'm going to be in the ballpark of that. I'm going to be okay. Absolutely. You yeah. Know? I'm with you. It's all about timing because also the injury bug comes into play, Jeff, right? Sometimes you're up for a contract and all of a sudden you get hurt. And then that completely changes the outlook of your career at oh least God, through the yeah. lens of yourself as well as the team. So you always have to consider all of those factors. And there's risk. There's your risk, right? Yep. The teams take risk, and so do the players. Here comes our second question from TCNYG on Twitter. Two-part question. Do you feel we drafted and signed players specifically to win the division? If so, who? Or if not, why? <laughs> well... It's a good question because you want to, you know, to make the playoffs, you want to win your division games, right? You want to win in a division. Um, and I think that there's some, ah, oh boy, that's a, I don't know. I, I don't think you draft in your division. I think that you draft as a vision <laughs> of what your football team wants to be, not so much in the division. I agree with you because, first of all, even though the easiest path to win the division is to beat your divisional foes, keep in mind, Jeff, that's only six yeah, you of your 16 games. games. So right. you still need to find a way to win 10 games or be competitive <laughs> outside of the division. So that is a, a very good point, as you noted. This is what I will say, though, Jeff. I do think it's fair if you look at this year's draft class, and I'm curious your thoughts what is the main theme in this division right now? If you were to look at the Cowboys, the Redskins, the Eagles, a few things come to mind. Number one, I think all three of those teams that I mentioned have done a really good job in beefing up their defensive lines. You look mm -hmm. at the Eagles, they've always had a rotational group of pass rushers. The Cowboys have brought in two free agents in Gerald McCoy and Dontari Poe, in addition to some of the young guys they're grooming. And the Redskins drafted Chase Young, and they already have Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne and Ryan Kerrigan, just to name a few, and Matt Ioannidis. So if I'm the Giants, I think you are certainly saying to yourself, well, if we've got to deal with that six times every single season, plus what we're going to get outside of the division, yeah, that's a big reason why you go out and you draft Andrew Thomas, Matt Parrott, and Shane Lemieux. Mm -hmm. So if you were to ask me, when I look at this draft class specifically, did they help their cause in terms of trying to win the division or at least compete against the strengths of the divisional foes? Those three guys, I think, come to mind. And I'll throw another guy out there, McKinney. Because if McKinney is this jack-of-all-trades type of player that's going to help the secondary as we started off the conversation with Jeff, well, what's another theme across the division? Okay, what did Dallas do? Dallas drafted C.D. Lamb to join forces with Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup, and they have Blake Jarwin, a young tight end. A lot of playmakers up and down the field, plus yeah. Zeke. You look at the Eagles. What did Philadelphia do in the draft? They brought in Jalen Rager. They acquired Marquise Goodwin. There's a lot of speed, a lot of versatility in terms of their receiving core now. You need guys in the secondary. And then the Redskins, maybe to a lesser degree than Philadelphia and Dallas, but... 
depending on what Ron Rivera and Scott Turner, their OC, their new offense calls for, they're certainly going to test the secondary. So if you look at it through that lens, yes, I think those players certainly help match up decently with the strengths of the NFC East foes. Good point. Yeah, and years ago, it was the big, um, it was the big corners, tall corners, yeah. because you know the NFC East had tall receivers. Um, so you kind of saw a run on those types of players. So I think there is a little bit of uh, team building within your division. But on a whole, I feel like it's not the primary way to build your team, but it is emphasis. It has to be there. Really 100%. And I think that also hits it right on the nose. And we certainly appreciate all of you for submitting your questions and continue to do so. Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions or hashtag Giants chat. And of course, you can interact with the two of us directly on Twitter at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Jay Fiegels. Feel free to send them in to us. We want to keep this interaction going throughout the remainder of the offseason during the time in which we're not able to take phone calls. So please do not hesitate sending in your questions. We'll be more than happy to address as many as we can each and every program. So that is going to wrap up Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Thanks again to Alabama head coach Nick Saban for joining us earlier in the program. Some great insight. And that will be up and running on Giants.com for you to listen to whenever you please. Jeff, always enjoy the conversation and look forward to doing it again shortly. Absolutely, Lance. Thank you. Everybody stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest news and notes. We'll have another special guest coming your way on Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Somebody connected to seventh-round pick Chris Williamson out of Minnesota. For Jeff Eagles, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday, and we'll speak to you right here on Thursday on Giants.com. Have a good one.